we're so glad that you're here with us this week. As always, we're upholding you in prayer whenever and wherever you are. As always, be sure to give us a like on Facebook and check us out at www.shumcokc.org. I want to welcome you to Southern Hills United Methodist Church, whether you're on campus or online. I am glad that you're here to worship with us today. And as, uh, as I've shared with you, Kate and I have been kind of excited about the idea of moving so many of our family members here to South Oklahoma City. We actually uh, absolutely love it here in South OKC. And we love being at Southern Hills. Um, and so over time, uh, gosh, I guess over the course of really the last year and a half to two years, we have been instrumental in helping to move my parents down uh, to uh, the neighborhood really right next to ours here in South Oklahoma City from Edmond. And then uh, Kate's mother here from Atlanta, she moved uh, to a neighborhood not far from ours either. Uh, and then very recently, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we moved my oldest daughter, Robin, down here from upstate New York. Um, and we were uh, in the process of uh, going through that move when Kate was contacted by her brother, Logan. Uh, Logan has grown up and lived in Pensacola his whole life. Kate is originally from Pensacola. She was born in California, but moved to Pensacola as a young child and was raised there. And so much of her family uh, lived there, still lives there or in the area around it. Her sister, Lindy, is still there with her family. Uh, Logan said, hey, you know, I really, uh, I think he'd been out here to visit. And he said, hey, I think I really want to come and move out there, be a little closer to you, be a little closer to his mother. And we said, yeah, sure, absolutely. And so um, we had set a time. I was actually, I'd actually scheduled this weekend to be away for one of two personal retreats that I keep committing to myself that I am going to take every year. I keep telling myself at the beginning of the year that I'm going to take two personal spiritual retreats. I'm going to go somewhere, uh, spend some time alone with the Lord, do some reading, spend some time in reflection just all by myself. And I had to schedule this weekend to do that. So far, um, and Michelle and Kate both chastise me for this regularly, um, every time that rolls around, something that uh, I believe is more important comes up, the Holy Spirit guides me somewhere. And so this weekend, uh, I am away and helping Kate's brother, Logan, to move here from Pensacola, Florida. He'll be buying a home very soon and getting established. And so um, we're, we're just super excited uh, about having him here, our, about our family here in South Oklahoma City growing larger. So I want to say a, a word of thanks to Brother Gary Clark, who has uh, preached the chapel service for us this morning over in the other building. Uh, Brother Clark always does a wonderful job. Uh, he's a gifted speaker and does a, a wonderful ministry, engages in a wonderful ministry helping to train lay speakers in the United Methodist Church. If you have an interest in doing a little bit of volunteer preaching, not necessarily just at this church, but also maybe at other United Methodist churches, we actually do have a program for that in the United Methodist Church, and we call it lay servant training. So I'm going to encourage you to talk to me or come to the church office or just pull Gary aside um, he helps to lead that for the conference, and he would love to get you connected. All right, we are uh, working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We've been talking some about a few themes within this particular letter, right? Um, one of those themes is that the things that are happening in Corinth, uh, the way that the Corinthian Christians, this is early on in the formation of the church, right? Um, the word church comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, means called out ones. Ekklesia will come to be the root word for words like ecclesiastical, 
which refers to the church. Um, at, at this time, the early church is just forming. It's just becoming a thing. Um, centuries later, just a few centuries later, uh, that this, this area of the world where Corinth is will develop into a church that falls under um, the leadership of five different patriarchs in the church. Uh, eventually, the patriarch or the bishop of the church in Rome will, uh, will try to gain primacy over the other bishops. They will have a falling out, and there will be a split about a thousand years after this between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. But right now, there is, uh, there's, there, the, the church, the early church is just forming. And it's forming based on people who either have witnessed the teachings of Christ for themselves or have heard that from the apostles, right? Some people have also heard the story from someone who heard the story. We've talked about that. And so as a result of taking what they've heard back to the places where they're from, which is how the gospel message always spreads, right? One of the best things that we can do to share the gospel message is to share the love of Christ with one person each day. Now, I'm going to encourage you to uh, actively, as the Spirit leads you, invite people to join you here at Southern Hills. If God is changing your life here, God is going to change the lives of other people as well. That is how the good news of Jesus Christ spreads. It's how people are welcomed into communities of faith. You know, I often, I find myself thinking um, as I drive past churches uh, that I'll, I'll often look at them because I'm a minister and I'm interested in churches and church architecture, but it never occurs to me. Like it would never, if I was just driving past a church, and there are many of them here in Oklahoma City, it would never occur to me to, to just stop and go inside of that church and check it out. It would be something about that, even though everybody at that church, just like us, would be, would be welcome with open arms, whether it's in the middle of the week or particularly on a Sunday morning. It wouldn't occur to me to just go to a random church somewhere on a Sunday morning, right? Most people who come into the doors of the physical campus of a church are coming for one of two reasons. And, and those, those two reasons are different than what those reasons would have been even a decade ago right? One of those reasons is that they've encountered us through the virtual campus. A number of you have found us through the virtual campus, right? So you'll have uh, heard us that way, encountered our teaching and our worship that way, and decided to come here and check it out in person. The other way, and the most common way that the physical campus of a church grows, is because you invite somebody to join you. It is an intimidating thing to wander into a church, even though the people of the church, you're going to walk into a church, right? I remember... Um, when I was uh, serving as an associate minister at a church here in Oklahoma, and, and I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna give you the name of it because it's a great church full of great people and the story's funny. So I'm serving there and I'm also serving uh, as a collegiate minister at the time. And so um, I'm working in both the church and in the campus ministry, um, running the campus ministry. So I get there and I meet all the people, right? And I start talking to the people of the church. And I hear the people of the church talk about, like, like one of the things I'll ask is, what do you love about the church? What do you love about this place? Everywhere you go, People will say, I absolutely love the people of the church. We're the nicest people. We're the most welcoming people. You hear some version of that in every church you go to, and I heard it there too, right? And it's genuine, right? They really feel that way. Love the people of this church. Super nice, super kind, super welcoming. I go to the campus ministry because there's a disconnect between the two, right? The, not many of the students from the campus ministry are attending the church, and I want to know why because I want to integrate them. And so uh, I ask the students, I'm like, so why, why don't you go to this church? You know what they said? Those people are not nice at all. 
Like, they're not welcoming at all. Like, we walk in there, and they make us feel bad about being there. The way they look at us or avoid us, they're kind of cliquish, and they stand together, you know, in their own little groups, and they don't reach out to us. And so um, I said all that to say that we believe we're wonderful people, and I believe we are, right? We're great people. We enjoy being with one another. We're super nice. We're super kind. But it's a really intimidating thing if you're coming from outside of any organization to walk into it. Because while the people of that organization may know that it's not a closed group, it's not a closed system um, in terms of organizational dynamics, it's an open system. We want people here. When you're the, the new person walking in, that's intimidating and scary and weird. It is 10 times easier to do that when someone has invited you because you already have a point of contact. So if Christ is making a difference in your life here, Go out and invite somebody to join you and take one step beyond that. Say, hey, come to church with me on Sunday and then maybe invite them to get a cup of coffee beforehand. Whether that's here, get a cup of coffee here. Hey, meet me in the, uh, the entryway to the ministry center right outside at whatever time, 10, 15 in the morning, and come in and I'll get a cup of coffee with you. We'll find a place to sit. That, that really makes that process so, far, so much less intimidating and it already gives them a point of contact, right? Because then they don't have to meet people by themselves. They can meet people because you're introducing them to people. It works so much better. So um, all of that is to say that the church of Corinth is spread, the, the, the good news of God in Jesus Christ is spreading, spreading in places like Corinth, and it's spreading by word of mouth. But as it spreads, as the gospel spreads around what was then for those people, their known world, these uh, fledgling Christian groups are forming, and they're forming with some belief systems that don't necessarily reflect the teaching or the example or the love of Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that. So Paul is writing to help correct that. We've talked about some of the things he's dealing with. Things like social stratification in the church. Some people are more important than others. Some spiritual gifts are more important than others. Um, that he's talked a bit about the resurrection of the dead, the need to change your behavior when you discover that what, you're, what you believe and what you do is not in line with the teachings of Christ. To fully think through what you believe, lest a failure to do so inadvertently and unintentionally cause harm. So he's, he's addressing a number of topics that are germane to what it means to be the body of Christ. Now, that's in the context of some larger conversations. Like Corinth, for instance, is having some conversations about the resurrection, which would make sense, right? This is not just, uh, you're not talking about one or two people joining a church, learning about what it means to be a part of a church, in which there are still a bunch of questions. If you're brand new to Christianity and you walk into a church, there's a whole lot of the culture that is our culture that feels weird. You don't know why people are doing what they're doing, and just like everybody seems to know what to do, and you don't know what to do, right? There's all the questions. Well, imagine that in the context of an entire group of people coming together with no experience of this and trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. So they have all the questions. One of those questions is, tell me about this resurrection thing. What, what happens in the resurrection? If um, they, there was this, uh, this conversation that they were having, a belief system that was a common belief system in the ancient Mediterranean world. And it was the idea that there was a difference to some degree between your physical body and your spiritual body, or we might say today, your physical self and your spiritual self. A lot of those beliefs sounded something like this, that your physical self is a dim reflection of your spiritual self. Philosophically, that's called idealism, that the physical is a dim reflection of the spiritual. What does that mean? That uh, kind of philosophy would say that the spiritual 
is actually what's real. Spiritual, um, spirituality goes way beyond what physicality is able to do. That's the, the way that philosophy works. It encompasses so much more, right? Because the spirit is not confined by the body. So there's a, the spiritual realm or the spirituality of a human goes way beyond the physicality of a person and therefore is the bigger thing and is the real thing. God exists how? In spirit and in truth. So they would say that spirituality is more real and physicality is a dim reflection of spirituality. Genesis 1 says that we were created in the image of God. There's several interpretations about what that means. One of them, and I actually am not sure that, I think this one makes sense. I think there's a more accurate version. You should check out the Thursday morning Bible study where I'm going to talk about that. But um, That we were created in the image of God. One of the um, explanations of that is that we, that we are created as a physical representation of what is essentially a spiritual being. Well, that's the conversation happening in Corinth, that you have a physical self and you have a spiritual self, because this is one of the conversations that's, that's uh, germane to their culture. Uh, put that in the context of the myriad of social conversations that are common in American culture today. This was one of theirs. So Paul is speaking directly to that about the difference between the physical body and the spiritual body. Remember, they were struggling with this belief that Christ was resurrected, but humans didn't experience the resurrection. And Paul said that doesn't even make any sense. We talked about that last week. So part of what he's going to uh, deal with this week is their question about what it is that's resurrected. In the resurrection, or at the end of all things, right? Um, the, the theological word for that is in the eschaton, or eschatologically, the end of all things, when there's a new heaven and a new earth and the resurrection happens, uh, their question is, is your physical body going to be raised or is your spiritual body going to be raised? There was a belief in ancient Judaism that it was your, your physical body that would be raised, hence part of this conversation, because some of the teachings of ancient Judaism are conflicting with some of the teachings of Greek philosophy, that there's a, a spiritual body, physical body. Judaism is saying your physical body is laid to rest, and at the resurrection, at the end of time, your physical body is raised from the dead, and that belief system, the ancient Jewish belief system, said it would be raised, raised from the dead, you would be given new life, and that new life happens here, where there is a new heaven and a new earth, where the new, the new Jerusalem will come down. So these conversations are happening in Corinth, they're like, what is the truth? What's real? Do I have a physical body in the resurrection? Or is my body primarily spiritual? And they were leaning toward this idea that, there was a, that, that your physical body would be the body that you had in the resurrection. Paul's going to say, no, that's not entirely accurate. And as a result, is going to help us to understand something that I think is incredibly important for who we are as Christians today. Of course it's interesting, right, to talk about what, what we're going to look like, what we're going to be like, in the resurrection or in eternity. And that information, I think, is important for us to study as Christians. But I also think there's a deeper lesson here. And that is, one of the things Paul's going to be saying is that who we are now and what we are now is not what we will be in eternity. And that means that where we are now, the way the world is the way that it is now, is not the way that it will be eternity. But we're given a task. What is it, how will it be in eternity if you're new to the faith? Revelation talks about this. Um, John wrote the book of Revelation. Writes about it this way. There's going to be a time when there will be no more suffering and no more tears and no more loss, no more fear that we'll live together eternally in the presence of God. 
we won't die and therefore we'll no longer have to say goodbye to the people that we love. There won't be any war, there won't be any suffering, there won't be hatred or malice. We'll be able to live together in essentially the way that was intended at our creation, story of which is told in the book of Genesis. What is that all to say? That there's hope that what is to come is better and healthier than what we're living in now. You often hear me talk about that um, as the broken ethic of a wounded world, right? We're living according to the broken ethic of a wounded world. Part of what Paul is saying is what we're living in is not the way things will always be. Something better is yet to come. But there's a caveat. Because we're living as people who are followers of the risen Christ. God has come. That's the story of the scripture. God has come incarnate. The person of Jesus Christ has given us an opportunity to know God for ourselves. That is the book of Hebrews. And because of that, the kingdom of heaven is already breaking in to the brokenness of the world and healing the world. Not in the way that it fully will one day, but it's happening in places and ways and through people now because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's hope in that. The Paul, Paul is going to teach us that, which gives us a challenge. And that challenge makes all the difference. Let's see how Paul teaches it. The scriptures are holy, and before we consider them, we should pray. Let's do that. Gracious and giving God, we're grateful for the opportunity to learn and to grow and to grow closer to you and to becoming the people that you've called us to be. Help us today as we study the scriptures that have been left for us so that through them we will know you better. This we ask in your holy name. Amen. All right, we're in uh, chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 35. We're going to take that to verse 38 and then skip to verse 42. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up. Um, if you're here, there are pens and highlighters on the table you're uh, welcome to use those, write in your Bible, take some notes. But someone will say, Paul was a master rhetorician. Uh, rhetoric is not, uh, rhetoric today, like that word, has to some degree, I think, connotatively become synonymous with like lying and not telling the truth. <laughs> I think that's ridiculous because the word rhetoric actually means how do you speak effectively to a group of people? How do you speak to people effectively? Um, Paul was a great rhetorician. And one of the things that he does is create a, uh, a virtual argument, right? He says things like, okay, he's going he's to create the argument and then give the answer to the question that somebody might ask so that other people, either if they're thinking that argument to themselves, he addresses what they're thinking about. He also steals their thunder. If somebody's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Paul to task about this, Paul's like, somebody might say this, and then he gives the answer. Now that person can't confront him. It's a master rhetorical technique, but someone will say Paul writes this. How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come back? Look, fool, when you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't come back to life unless it dies. What you put in the ground does not have the shape that it will have, but it's, but it's a bare grain of wheat or some other seed. God gives it the sort of, sort of, uh, excuse me, the sort of shape that he chooses and he gives each of the seeds its own shape, right? There's a message there. What is, uh, what is put into the ground has to die before it can come back. That's a lot of our images, not all of them, but a lot of our scriptural images and the language about dying to self comes from this passage, also comes from uh, the image of Christ's death on the cross and res resurrection into new life, um, and that more abundantly so. But there's, a, there's an image here 
that you have to die to what you were to become what you're going to be. That you cannot carry what you once were, the way you once were, into what God is helping you to become. God is helping you to become a new creation, right? And that means that there are certain parts of who I am that are going to be left behind in that process, almost like the process of a caterpillar cocooning and becoming a butterfly. If I'm going to become what God is helping me to become, I'm going to have to leave behind some of the things that uh, are not a part of who God is calling me to be. Another way to say that is that if I'm going to become who God is calling me to become, to step into life in that more abundantly so, to step into a healthier expression of life in which the love of Christ is reflected in me more abundantly and reflected out into the world more meaningfully, that's going to happen. There are parts of who I am that cannot step into that life. I'm going to have to let them go. There are beliefs that I have that are going to have to be left behind. The language here is, I'm going to have to let those things die and be reborn, remade into something new, right? There's also a, uh, an understanding there that the, the world works that way too. What, what is here now is going to go away, and what is yet to come is going to be something that is different. So part of, uh, part of what Paul is saying is that what you're living in now, the, the uh, broken ethic of a wounded world, is not what will come into eternity. That's a different place. It, things are going to be done a different way. It's going to be ruled differently, and you're going to be engaging to, uh, the, the Spirit of God differently than you're doing that here. All right, let's skip to verse 42. It's the same with the resurrection of the dead. A rotting body is put into the ground, but what is raised won't ever decay. It's degraded when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in glory. It's weak when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in power. There's a transformation, right? Uh, the ground here being a, a metaphor for a source of life and nourishment, and that from which uh, humanity is drawn, from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. We come from the ground we come, and, and to the ground we will return. So the, uh, the image of the ground actually in Genesis, when you're talking about the creation story of, the, of Adam, the, the image of dust, which is a word used to describe the ground, is not an image of desolation. Think of it more like a womb. It is an image of an incubator for creation. And so what Paul is saying here is that you're going you're gonna to have to go into this, what is the image of the incubator of creation, you're going to have to go into the ground so that you can be nourished and reborn, reformed, as something else. But when you do that, what comes out is not going to be the same thing that goes in. Now he's talking here, using a metaphor that he, I think he's hoping his people can understand, about what it's going to be like to transition from the way we're living now to the eternity that is promised to us as followers of Christ. That's going to be a different thing. Uh, in essence, Paul is saying we're going to die to this. We're going to die to this, and we're going to be reborn into that. And what we're reborn as, using the image of the seed, um, is reflective of what we once were, but is so much grander, so much greater, so much healthier, so much better, that it almost does not even compare to the seed that went into the ground. But it's raised in glory. It's weak when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in power. Verse 44. It's a physical body. Here he, go, here he goes. It's a physical body when it's put into the ground, but it's raised as a spiritual body. So Paul is uh, kind of directed contradicting some of that older teaching. You're not going to be raised, he's saying, as a, as a physical body. If you uh, grew up in a Christian tradition, or maybe with family members who thought that they could not be cremated because, they, because of uh, religious reasons, that is rooted in that very old, ancient Jewish belief that humans would die, and at the end of time, you would be resurrected 
uh, in bodily form to live together with Christ. That teaching sort of evolved into something like this. If you're cremated, then there's nothing of you to raise in the resurrection, right? And so that kind of stuck for a while, and there are more than a few Christians and more than a few churches throughout uh, a long period of time who have been afraid of being cremated for fear that there would be nothing of them to raise at the resurrection. Paul's saying that's not how that happens. Um, he said that, that body, the body that you're going to have is going to be reflective of the body you had here, the physical body. Your spiritual body is going to be reflective of your, of your physical body, but it's a different thing. That's what Paul is saying. Let's see how he says it. Uh, again, verse 44. It's a physical body when it's put into the ground, but it's raised as a spiritual body. Using that metaphor of the seed, he's saying what's coming is, is so much grander than what was left behind in the ground. If there's a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first human, Adam, he's going to make a, a, draw a correlation between Adam and Christ, and that correlation that he's going to draw between Adam and Christ is a correlation between the physical and the spiritual, or life in the, according to the uh, broken ethic of a wounded world, and life according to the standard and the ethic of the kingdom, which we spent more than a little time talking about. This is the correlation. So it's written, the first human, Adam, became a living person, and the last Adam became a spirit that gives life. But the physical body comes first, not the spiritual one. The spiritual body comes afterward. The first human was from the earth, made from dust. Again, not an image of desolation. Think of that more as an incubator, an image of the womb. The second human is from heaven. The nature of the person made of dust is shared by people who are made of dust. The nature of the person made on earth is shared by other people made on earth. That, what he's saying is there's an ethic here, and that ethic of brokenness has become the norm because of the uh, broken ethic of a wounded world that is the result of the fall that is told in the story of Eden. He's saying that's what's become normal here, and those of us who are born here are going to share that ethic, at least until we begin to understand and have our eyes opened to the idea that there's an alternative. Let's see how he says that. Verse 48, the nature of the person made of dust is shared by people who are made of dust. And the nature of the heavenly person is shared by heavenly people. We will look like the heavenly person in the same way as we have looked like the person made from dust. So he's saying in one sense, uh, he's using Adam and Christ here as a reference. We're going to look, uh, Adam was made to look the way that we look, and that's how we look according to where we live now. But in that day, we're going to look more like their understanding of how Christ is resurrected. What is what Christ is resurrected has a spiritual form. He's saying we're going to be resurrected in a spiritual form. Will you look similar to the way you looked here? The scriptural accounts of Christ indicate that that is true, but Christ goes beyond what is both capable and normal for people who are living according to the standards of the broken ethic of a wounded world. Christ is raised in spiritual form. Now, don't take that uh, as a misunderstanding. You're saying, Pastor, are you saying that the resurrection was spiritual and not bodily? No, the resurrection was bodily. Uh, Paul is not denying that. I am not denying that. But what he's saying is the body that is resurrected is different than the body that went into the ground. It is transformed and turned into something that is reflective of the heavenly court. Verse 50. This is what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit God's kingdom, something that rots cannot inherit something that does not decay. We will all be raised. We will not look the same. 
there's, an in, there's a, a wonderful and comforting message to that. And that message sounds maybe translated something like this. What is to come is better than what currently is. Not just the world, but the nature of our bodies. Our bodies are going to be more reflective of um, the, the healing nature and the health and wholeness of heaven than they are of the brokenness of earth. One of the things we hear from Genesis is that part of the curse results in the fact that today we die, we perish, we also suffer. Um, part of that curse involves a tremendous amount of physical suffering. What you see in the, um, the teaching of Paul here is that Paul is saying there's something else that's coming, right? That new body that's coming is going to be more reflective of the kingdom of heaven, of that time and of that, um, or that understanding of order where there's no pain and there's no suffering and there's uh, no hurt and there's no loss and, and your life is in that sense eternal. And that's wonderfully comforting. There's an important lesson there though. And that is that even now, because of the inbreaking of the kingdom, even though we're, we're not yet to uh, the place where we are resurrected as uh, in, according to the spiritual body that Christ is describing here, we have an opportunity to live according to the ethic of heaven even now. So one of the things that Paul is saying is, what will you do? Knowing that something better, let me say better this way, let me say something healthier, something more loving is possible. Knowing that that's possible for you and I here and now, knowing that that's where we're going, right? At some point, I'm going to go into the ground, I'm going to be like a seed that's brought back up into something that's grander than I could ever have anticipated, um, living into this ethic of the kingdom that I have been so hoping for throughout the course of my life. What Paul is saying is, it's, you know that now. You're following the teachings of Christ now. You're following the example of Christ now. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in now, even though um, what is breaking in now still has some time before uh, the, the entirety of everything is healed according to what we're taught about in Revelation. What does that mean for us? Who will you be now? Because I do not, I am not obligated to live according to the broken ethic of a wounded world. The fact that I live here does not mean I have to live that way. That's what Paul is saying. So what will you do? What will you do? Who will you be? Sometimes people do amazing things on a grand scale. I learned about Eric Dawson who founded a nonprofit uh, called Peace First. It's a nonprofit that seeks to provide $250 grants to youth between the ages of 13 and 25 around the world to address issues in their communities of injustice and inequity, right? Um, they started this nonprofit, and today they're, they're in something like uh, 12, uh, no, that's not right. They're in something like 60 different countries. They have uh, 122 people working in those places. They've sponsored uh, 4,700 projects in 122 different locations, right? And I think that's just an amazing example of what somebody does when they take a look at the world and say, I wonder if there is a way that I can live according to an ethic that's different than the one that I was born into, right? And then there are other people. Like a woman whose name I don't think I'll ever be able to remember. But I was sitting one Sunday in United Methodist Church in downtown Watertown, New York, when I was stationed there in the army. And as I was sitting there, it was cold, it was near Christmas time, and I was sitting in one of the pews, and the minister was telling a story about a mitten tree that was at the front of the sanctuary. It was just a Christmas tree, and it was covered in mittens. 
And he was telling the story as a part of his sermon that day. He said, here's the thing. Originally, many of you will remember this, about four decades ago, one of our United Methodist women, who was at that time in her life, uh, coming into her 60th year, and she started to be concerned that there were so many kids here in Watertown, he said, that did not have gloves in the cold season of the year. So he said one year in January, she just sat down and she started knitting. That was already her hobby. She already liked to do it. So she just started knitting and she made a pair of gloves. And when she finished that, she made another pair of gloves. And when she finished that, she made another pair of gloves. And lo and behold, by the time Christmas came around, she had enough gloves to fill up an entire tree. She came uh, into the church uh, many decades ago and said, what should I do with these gloves? They said, let's put them on a tree and let people give them away. So they did. And she was so encouraged by the fact that this one simple act was helping to keep the hands of children warm that immediately after Christmas, she sat down and used her free time to start knitting again. And he said every year, she ended up with more gloves than she'd had the year before. Every year they went on the tree. Every year, every single one of them was given out. He said she passed away about 20 years ago, and the church took on that mission. He said some some of the people in the church today still knit, but many go out and purchase gloves, and we fill up the tree in honor of a woman who saw that in a simple way, she could make a very loving difference. Who saw that in one way, that just because she lived in a place where people didn't have access to everything, didn't mean that she couldn't help them to have access to something. What, Paul says, will you do? Will you choose that because you're here now, knowing that someday things will be different? Paul says hope, but he says, will you hope alone? Is hope all that you will do? Or will you choose to embrace an ethic of the kingdom that is already breaking through into the brokenness of the world? And do that, do one big thing. The Holy Spirit is calling you to a big thing, go do a big thing. Go start a nonprofit and make a difference around the world. Go do that. Good gracious. If you would have told me when I came here almost six years ago, that Southern Hills United Methodist Church was going to operate one of the largest outreach ministries in the metro to people experiencing homelessness, I'm not sure I would have believed it. If you want to go do a big thing at the, at the behest of the Holy Spirit, go do a big thing. Follow the leading of the Spirit. Figure out how to resource it. You're not going to be without obstacles and hurdles. No matter what you choose to do, there are going to be obstacles and there are going to be hurdles. I can't tell you the number of times I've sat down with the leaders of that ministry and we've agonized over how we're going to find the money to pay for the ministry. I can't tell you how many times over the course of the pandemic, this month being one of them, I've sat down with the leaders of this church and agonized over how we're going to pay the bills of the church so we can keep doing some of the amazing things that the Spirit is doing here. You're not going to be without obstacles. Do it anyway. And trust in the Holy Spirit to bring together the people who will walk that road with you. Or do a small thing in a big way. Sit down and knit some gloves or whatever that looks like in your life. 
and start by making a small difference and end up making a bigger difference than you ever anticipated. Why? Because you, you chose to listen to the lesson of Paul, the lesson of the Holy Spirit. Hope for certain, but don't just hope. What will you do? Would you pray with me? God, we are so very grateful for the opportunity to live into the ethic of love that you, you exemplified and that you teach, the, the ethic of love that you call us to, and the example of your Son, Jesus Christ, which is there for us to live into. Oftentimes, God, we let the anxieties and the worries and the politics of the world that we live in clutter our hearts and minds so that we fail to see the forest for the trees, and in so doing, miss what you're doing. Help us to be a people who hope. But to don't get so bogged down by the fact that right now, today, we live according to the broken ethic of a wounded world. Help us to look ahead, to know and see with hope what is yet to come. Help us to see the places where your kingdom is breaking into that brokenness and bringing healing and hope so that we can step into that. This we ask in your holy name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Be sure to tune in next week.